Welcome back to the PTB Healthcare Capital Top Talks podcast series. This is Lauren Charette. I'm partner and director of operations at PTV, and I'm joined today by Dan Walsh. And Dan has served as an entrepreneur in residence with us at one point and most currently serves as a senior advisor to PTV. Dan has been partnering with us for about 10 years and has worked with several of our companies, including INEB and Apollo and Cardiva, and has really created a lot of incremental value for those companies. And we're very proud of the partnership that we've had with you over the years, and thank you again for, for joining us today. We're very excited about the insights that you're going to be able to provide to our audience. Okay. Well, thank you. It's been a real blast, actually. So, Dan, what we wanted to focus on today was what entrepreneurs should be thinking about as they bring new products and technologies to market. Mm-hmm. You have a lot of immense expertise that you bring to the table um, in this area, uh, kind of across all the different stages of that product development. So whether it's design, uh, through R&D and regulatory, through the commercial scale-up and launch, and our hope is really that you'll just be able to share some of these insights with our audience um, and, and kind of really bring your 20 plus years of experience to the table. Um, but before we dive into that, could I ask you to introduce yourself and just provide a little bit more context on your background and, sure. and areas of expertise? Sure. I'm Dan Walsh. I'm the uh, principal uh, now of DW MedTech Advisory, uh, which is my own boutique firm, uh, working particularly with startups in, in the MedTech space and getting them through those transitions to commercial. Uh, prior to that, I was actually the vice president of operations for Theracos, which was a spin-out company from Johnson & Johnson that we took, uh, took independent and just recently sold it to Mallinckrodt Medical for a, uh, for a nice exit price. So um, We were quite proud of what we did, and we were able to triple the capacity of the manufacturing operations, put a second line in, and get all of the quality metrics to Six Sigma levels in less than three years. So we're really proud of that, that business. Prior to that, I spent 20 years with PA Consulting Group, which is an international consulting firm, and I led their med tech business uh, out of our technology center in Princeton during that period of time, working primarily for large pharma companies, or pharma companies and device companies, and, uh, and running a laboratory where we did development and troubleshooting and all the classical consulting work that goes along with the, the regulatory pathway of quality systems. Wonderful. Well, we are so lucky to have you as an advisor to our fund and for you to be able to bring that expertise to bear on our companies. So let's just go ahead and dive right in. So from a technical perspective, Dan, what are some of the macro trends that you're seeing in the industry? Well, I, I was just having this question with uh, with another um, client, as a matter of fact. The, um, the demands from the regulators are becoming heavier and heavier, especially for first time out of the box, first product, new company types of situations where the burden of proof for both safety and efficacy is getting higher and higher and higher, uh, especially on novel therapies. Um, So they're looking for confidence that what you're doing is what you say you're going to do, how safe it is, what, how effectively you've managed the design so that it's deterministic, you get what you're expecting every time. And that's a hard place for a lot of startups to be because innovators, inventors are not process people. They're not used to 
strict adherence to the the, the rigor of design controls um, in the early stages of what they're good at. They have to depend on people further down the line. And that's where people like me do get involved because we understand what those labor pains look like. In fact, that's one of the, the taglines for my consulting firm is the MedTech midwife because all pregnancies don't require a, the, a world-class OBGYN. Most of them will do just fine with a midwife because the midwife knows what's coming and can let you know what's coming and prepare for it. So that's how we kind of approach it when we're getting into those situations. The, there are a couple of angles that this impacts. One is design control and how early you get into design control when you're innovating in the early stages of development. And the other one is risk management. And there are all kinds of different risk and, and risk management. The design control problem is, um, is a problem both of personality as well as process because entrepreneurs are loath to be tied down to a process. They don't want to be restricted, but simple fact of the matter is no agency is going to approve a device without a document trail that says that you've proven that this specification is executed appropriately in your design, that you've reduced it to practice, which is the term of art. There are ways to make very simple design control processes that are not going to encumber the companies, especially when they're on tight budgets and, and very, very tight timelines. What's worse um, for a lot of the companies that, that we deal with together and separately is interpreting risk versus uncertainty. Um, if, you, if you understand a risk, the risk is that the therapy doesn't work or the risk is that there's a complication of therapy that creates um, a surgical misadventure for the patient or for the physician, then you can manage that risk. You can mitigate that through design or through instructions or through materials, et cetera, and so forth. But if you just don't know, if it truly is uncertain, we don't know what's going to happen to this patient after we segment her bowel in three places. Well, I don't want you doing that to my family. So that's an uncertainty. And, and one of the real tricks uh, for, uh, for good medical device companies is figuring how to, how to turn uncertainties into risks and then minim minimizing the risks. And that's, that's not as easy as saying those words. <laughs> and that's where people really get wrapped around the axle most of the time. Got it. So you, you kind of led me into my next question a little bit, so maybe okay. we'll take a little bit further. So some of the common pitfalls mm -hmm. for entrepreneurs as they're working through this, this product development process, and um, so specifically as it relates to setting up a quality system. Mm -hmm. So what would you say are the common pitfalls um, that you see in the early stages? Um, using somebody else's, meaning that you, the new director of engineering that you hired away from Boston Scientific brings all of her electronic files from Boston Scientific and that becomes your, your design control system and your quality system. Bad idea. It's way too burdened by the corporate overhead that Boston Scientific or whoever else you modeled it from comes from. There are scalable techniques to develop quality systems and design control systems to allow you to do the necessary and sufficient. And very often the necessary and sufficient is, is 
although it's inelegant and people snicker at it, are spreadsheets and access databases that have all of the test results in it and drawings that are held literally in a fire safe if you don't have the electronic storage. That's a perfectly viable way to do it, and there's no restriction in the regulations to say you can't do it that way. So it really comes down to what's necessary, what's sufficient, how many people need to be there, who needs to sign off on it. Again, how do you take the requirements definition of the product and prove that every one of those specifications have been met and that you've managed all the risks and that you understand all the failure modes, et cetera, et cetera. That's a document trail that anybody can put together. And all you need to be able to do it is be very disciplined about following through on those actions. That's great perspective. And from an investor's perspective, I'd say we'd love to see companies that are really focusing on what's necessary and efficient um, mm -hmm. versus doing more than they need to, especially at those early stages. Yeah. So let's switch gears a little bit. Um, and could you talk a little about when you're transitioning a company from a prototype stage or product rather from a prototype stage to a commercial stage, mm -hmm. what are some of the best practices? And then on the flip side of that, what, what are the common mistakes that you see? Okay. I'm gonna, I'm gonna dodge the best practices for a second. I'm gonna start with the mistakes. The mistakes come from attempting to just build uh, so many hundred of your prototype device because first and foremost the people who actually built that prototype device were not manufacturing people they weren't operators they were the engineers and the technicians they will do things without thinking not not out of ignorance but just out of reflex because they have the disciplines and the education to know what goes together but a product that can't scale that you can't um, make more than one of in a row that functions um, is is the nightmare scenario for getting to getting to commercial because you wind up with a room full of failed ones for every one that you get out the door. Um, there was a uh, there's an insulin pump company that that I worked with a number of years ago who quite literally had three semi-tractor trailers in their parking lot and two rooms in a warehouse full of broken pumps. And they shipped two pumps to every patient when the prescription was filled. So they had one and a hot standby. And it was guaranteed that one of those pumps was going to fail in the first six months. So, and when they came back, they couldn't fix it. So that took a significant rework to get that product to the point where it could actually be repetitively manufactured. And that's, that's where you have to go. The best practices are incorporating design for manufacturability, which is a nice buzzword. It's been around for 18 years, but it's, it's real. It, it really comes down to making things that snap together when you can so that you don't have tolerances from screws and, and, and things like that. Um, making sure that the materials you're using are robust so that you're not handling uh, gold leaf in a windstorm, just for a gross analogy, and, and basically blowing money away uh, on the shop floor. Making sure that the manufacturing operation is first class with regard to environmental controls, because 
some materials don't uh, don't respond well to changes in environmental temperature or humidity or some other behavior, and that can have horrific effects on the product in the field. So, so there are those. The, the best practices really are use the same kind of rigor and discipline to get the transitions right. Again, risk analysis. What will go wrong if we're trying to build a hundred of these? What's the right size of lots of raw materials coming in that we can handle them, that they're not going to expire, that they're not going to have too much variability in them? Those types of things. That's helpful. And so I want to spend a little bit more time on this uh, kind of taking the product from you know, kind of the development phase really to mm -hmm. getting to that commercial scale. And one of the areas where you've been really helpful across our portfolio is coming in and helping to take the cost out of the product. Mm -hmm. So what, from your perspective, is the right time to really start focusing on you know, where in that development process do you really focus on the cost reduction? That, actually, that's a fantastic question, uh, and there are probably a couple of answers. Um, I think that you always need to be conscious of cost at some level. When in our business, with reimbursements the way they are, and with the pressures on the healthcare system, um, you need to be thinking about that as soon as, you're, as soon as you have something more than a technology. If you really think you have a product, and that has to be part of the requirement specification and indeed the performance specification that you're building to. Now that said, in order to get into the clinic and to demonstrate um, effectiveness but also to differentiate your product from the rest of the marketplace, I wouldn't pinch pennies early in the process. As you're getting through the later stages, the design is locked down, you know all the key determinants of performance and all the critical to quality parameters. Then you start looking for cost reductions. And then it becomes things like, as I mentioned earlier, taking all the um, threaded fasteners, the screws and standoffs and things like that out and switching over to snap together parts. Can you move from machined mechanisms to molded parts? Can you move from custom-built electronics to mass-produced um, electronics. The electronics side has actually become much more of a commodity side of the business, but now we're doing such exotic things with materials and with mechanisms that it's it, it, the bill starts to ring up fairly quickly if you're not careful. So once we, once we get to a lockdown design, then I think you do need to go through a, a first phase of cost reduction. And then once we're in production, I think then it becomes a routine review. I think that's where continuous improvement, it, it really needs to be a serious discipline. And you need to be looking at those costs all of the time, particularly when you've got materials contracts coming up or when um, the process machinery on the line is starting to get to its end of life. There are all opportunities to get cost out of the product. Now that's, that's great perspective and I know on the you know, exit side for us from an investor, you really get paid for getting the cost out mm -hmm. and creating yeah. a product that can really just drop in somebody else's bag. Mm -hmm. um, so that's that's great perspective in terms of when you should really start thinking about taking the cost out of the product versus proving that technology and getting it through kind of that clinical uh, proof concept phase. So um, great, great feedback there. We'll switch gears one last time. Sure. 
Um, so specifically as it relates to the design history file, how do you do the design history file right? <laughs> I have, I actually have a fairly strong opinion about this. Uh, when we talked earlier about about the design control and the quality systems and when you should start them, there really is a distinction for a, from a structural point of view between investigation and discovery, and I'll use the term from the drug side, but investigation, invention, discovery, and development. And when you have proven all of the concepts that will integrate into the, the system, you come to the end of discovery. And reducing that to practice is the development side. My, my rule of thumb is you start design control as you go into development, because you don't want to have a dossier of paperwork for every invention or every experiment. But you do want to have a robust design input, design output, and design history file from the point where you're actually developing a product and developing the product and everything is, all the inventions are locked down. So that's where design control and, and device history file starts in my best practice. Now that's, again, great feedback, mm -hmm. great perspective. So Dan, how do you and your consulting practice specifically, where do you think you add the most value for entrepreneurs? There, I think there are a key number of places and we've touched on most of them. As a boutique, a firm like mine is not who you go to to do design or, uh, or bench level engineering work. Um, but when it comes to the, the process elements of that design control, when it comes to building the technical dossier that you're going to submit to the regulators, either for IDE or for submissions, um, then we can help. People like us can get in, uh, perform gap analyses, make sure that those risk analyses are actually accurate and that you've mitigated them as much as possible, that your, um, that your design review history where you're actually asking yourself the tough questions about whether the thing has met the requirements are done correctly. Uh, and then when you're getting to scale, because it's a different set of disciplines. There's, um, this is ancient history in um, Harvard Business Review uh, memory, but there's a, there was a paper many years ago that reflects on something called the Griner Curve for startup companies. And the Griner Curve, um, illustrates a series of crises in the maturity of, of a startup company. And what you find is that startup companies are staffing to solve the last crisis. And what they need to be thinking about is the next crisis. And if you don't have to hire somebody to do that, but you can rent or lease skills to come in and advise and help, then you don't, you're not building a massive organization to solve that one crisis. And that's I think there is a real opportunity for professional resource like me and others like me to come in and, and help address those problems, leave a bit of discipline and knowledge behind, and then move on. And that doesn't overburden the company. 
you've certainly been helpful in many of our companies doing doing just that. Mm -hmm. um, so Dan, any final advice for, for entrepreneurs? I know we've covered a, a lot, but anything else we haven't covered that you think would be helpful for folks to be thinking about? Uh, this is a little bit off topic, but it's actually something we've dealt with in almost every uh, interaction that we've had together uh, under the PTV portfolio, and that's the entrepreneurs and the management need to think really hard about how they're going to manufacture early on. We've, uh, we've made mistakes in the past where we've tried to build out native capability and build a manufacturing floor and, and then only produce five of them a year or something like that so you don't retain the skill sets, you don't get any kind of leverage. We've found that a balance between insourced, very expert operations capability and outsourced commodity and, and high volume capabilities is the right balance in those experiences. People should ask that question early and often. Are we doing the right thing in building a manufacturing operation? That's great advice and can be a huge expense and cost if you make the wrong decision yeah. um, at, that, at that point in time. Dan, thank you again for joining us today and for your guidance. Uh, we really appreciate it. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.